Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about progressivism and the Christian left with Dr. Bill Anderson. Uh, Dr. Anderson is a professor of economics at Frostburg State University in Frostburg, Maryland. His PhD in economics is from Auburn University, and he serves as an associate scholar with the Mises Institute. He's published numerous articles and papers on economics, political economy, including articles in The Independent Review, Reason Magazine, The Free Market, The Freeman, Public Choice, and many others. He joins us today to talk about the Christian left and progressivism. Bill, thanks for being with us. Well, it's good to be here. So um, some of the listeners know that my story in becoming a libertarian actually happened on my way to almost becoming a leftist. Uh, and I was enamored with some of the people that we'll, we'll probably mention here as we, as we have our conversation. I was enamored with their way of doing theology and hermeneutics, and something just didn't quite sit right. And I, I kind of had this nudge. I often will say that I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit nudging me or not, but uh, I, I knew I had to learn economics. And so I did a little bit of studying of economics and, and ended up becoming a libertarian. Uh, so I, I avoided becoming a Jim Wallace loving sojourners <laughs> aficionado. Um, but, you know, I've, I've kind of kept tabs on the Christian left uh, through through Facebook, through social media and through, you know, just you know reading articles and stuff. And I come to discover that you've actually been keeping tabs on the Christian left for the better part of my life. And so I, I thought it would be great to have you on to talk about the experience, you know, where did the Christian left come from? Because I think we all have heard, you know, the Christian right came from a certain sort of uh, center of Christian Christian thinking and, and Christian tradition, but we, we don't really know a lot of the backstory of the Christian left. And then also, of course, to talk about, you know, what are some of the things that we can do as libertarians when we have conversations with people on the left who may not realize it, but all they just sound like they're repeating Karl Marx in their in their pronouncements about economics. So you're you're the guy to you're the guy to talk to. I'm told. Well, thank you. All right. Um, well, my start with them uh, goes back into my uh, early college days and. Uh, there, as you know, back then you had the Vietnam War going on, and that was definitely a, a rallying point for the left. And, and Vietnam was extremely divisive. Uh, I happened to have a very low draft number, uh, which meant that uh, I carried around for uh, for a long time, for more than a year, a draft card that said 1A. So I, I, and I actually had to take my physical and, um, of course, when was going to be inducted and then they signed the peace accords uh, and then President uh, Nixon then abolished the draft. And as a result, uh, I did not have to go to Vietnam, but but certainly that was uh, so. It was a very real thing to me, and uh, the uh, and at the time uh, there was uh, Jim Wallace and uh, Wes Michelson and some others that uh, they they got together. Uh, and formed a group. They were in Chicago, and they had a publication called Post American, and uh, they uh, it was about uh, a lot of it was about Vietnam, but also social justice. And you have to understand that at that time there was, uh, if you had you had the issue with the civil rights movement, and there was a lot of movement uh, toward. Uh, leftist economics and away from uh, <clears throat> from anything we would have called free enterprise or free markets uh, in the United States. One thing you have to keep in mind that that at that time you had a uh, the leftists were were just 
were just really starting to get involved in environmentalism. You had the population control movements. Uh, you had the view that resources were disappearing and that um, we were facing a real dystopian future. Uh, for example, um, the uh, uh, if, you, if you read a number of books from InterVarsity Fellowship uh, – at that time, you would find that InterVarsity pretty much had embraced that left-wing view. I went to the Urbana Conference in 1973, and this was during the energy crisis then, which was actually caused by price controls. But um, uh, And I remember one of the speakers declaring that even if the earth were a ball full of oil, that in 40 years at the present rates, we would exhaust all of it. And so, um, you know, he seemed authoritative enough. I mean, he was, I, I don't, I forget which speaker it was, but, uh, and certainly by then, uh, John Stott, for example, had embraced uh, socialism and he was very, very big. He wrote the book, Basic Christianity, which had influenced a lot of, of, of believers in that day, and uh, still does, by the way. It's you know it's it's a it's a very good book. Uh, he uh, he moved away from some of those doctrines later in life, uh, and actually embraced the doctrine of of annihilation as opposed to uh, the doctrine of hell. But um, but you had it, you know, certainly, you know, you had worldwide poverty. I mean, I think at that time, about 40% of the people on the earth were living in really poor conditions. And, you know, Americans start becoming aware of what we call the third world and how people were living then. And, um, and so and you had the issue of population growth. For example, I read a book um, that was published by InterVarsity Fellowship by Michael Green called New Life, New Lifestyle. And uh, he argued uh, that uh, he had a sort he, he quoted, there was an Anglican uh, who had rewritten the Ten Commandments. And they were very anti-capitalist, but also one of them, the Seventh Commandment, it's, you know, you shall not. You know, you know, the commit adultery. You shall not commit sexual sin by having more children than is your right. Well, Whoa. this again, yeah, this appears in an intervarsity book. Okay, now it was Michael Green quoting somebody else, but quoting him approvingly. Uh, this is now. This is I'm not, you know, in defense, in you know, intervarsity. This is not intervarsity endorsing this viewpoint, but. When it appears in an InterVarsity book, it's very clear that, you know, and they don't do any, they don't say, ask them, say, hey, are you sure about this? That th you can understand this is where, but this is where people were. And what they believed was that um, if we did not have uh, immediate government takeover of resources, that, that the capitalism was going to drive us into pollution and ruin, uh, we were going to overpopulate, have mass starvation and the like. And so these folks embraced that viewpoint. Uh, and uh, um, my dad at the time taught at Covenant College and taught Bible. And one of the books that he used was Ronald Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, the 1977 version, which I actually have here. I'm working on a paper that takes a look back at the economics of Ron Sider in 1977. And I know Sider has made changes since then, and uh, uh, I'm not. And he doesn't. He he says he doesn't believe everything he believed back in 77. But nonetheless, that. Um, you had a whole movement. It wasn't just a few leftists. I mean, you know, InterVarsity Fellowship uh, with the Urbana Conference was huge. And it was, uh, and InterVarsity was at the time uh, theologically reformed. Uh, it was, in other words, that a lot of the stuff that came out of its press side was Calvinistic, uh, or, you know, or what we would call today reform. Um, it was where actually I really embraced Reformed theology because of what I read through InterVarsity. And, um, 
the uh, so you had this um, uh, you had this this movement based upon people are looking out there and they're seeing a world gone mad. And you know, and Americans are becoming more aware of of the environment. Uh, we, you know, you have this this. You know, Paul Ehrlich had the population bomb, and again, people were embracing it. Uh, if you read, go back and read Ronald Sider's nineteen seventy seven version of Rich Christians, you basically have him embracing the Paul Ehrlich, um, Garrett Hardin. Um, Robert Heilbronner view of the world and uh, that uh, governments have to come in they've got this governments consist of people who know they have the answers and they have to step in because if not these capitalists are just going to lead us all over cliff and lead this world into you know nuclear war and and dystopia and and the like. And if you remember, you know, you had movies like Mad Max that came out a little bit later, or Escape from New York. You know, where you know by now New York City is a walled off uh, high security prison and uh, things like that. And so this was again, this was the general viewpoint. Uh, you also remember at the time we were having terrorist attacks all the time. You had the, you know, the Black September attacks at the Olympics in 1972. Um, you, uh, you had regularly had terrorist activity. You had the 1973 Yom Kippur War in uh, Israel. And so, again, you go back to that time. And that's one of the things I'm doing as, I, as I'm researching, going back to that time and it's more understandable that young people would embrace something of a leftist viewpoint. I was a leftist back then. I remember, you know, uh, I, I worked as a reporter at a very, very conservative paper, and I wanted to give uh, my editor some copies of Sojourners, thinking that it would convert him from, you know, from his <laughs> conservative thinking. All right, and so, I mean, I... I believed that stuff as well. The one thing where I drew the line, though, was uh, with what you you would call communism. I mean, I felt that communism was a bad thing. I wasn't sure why it was a bad thing. I just knew that it was. And I felt that a lot of these folks were really, um, they were crossing into that territory, uh, and uh, certainly Sojourners was the first to do it. They, um, uh, I remember in 1976, they had an interview with Dorothy Day and in which she praised China uh, because there was no more hunger or no more want in China. That, you know, the, China, the Chinese had done some sort of economic miracle. When in fact, I mean, we're talking about things like the Great Leap Forward. At that time, they were having the Cultural Revolution, which was a really awful time. And uh, uh, you had had the uh, the Cambodian uh, massacres, for which sojourners never would criticize. They never would even admit that it was happening. And they had another interview with a uh, uh, with a. Mennonite couple that was in Vietnam, and they referred to the new communist government as being Christian. You know, to them, they said it's going to be more Christian, more egalitarian than the previous one. So, in other words, it was a view they're starting to embrace this sort of egalitarian gospel. Um, and, uh, you know, and so that's where, you know, and and my a lot of my thinking, especially on economics, was not formed very well at all. Uh, you know, I had as a student, I'd kind of crapped around during uh, econ classes, skipped a lot. Of them. I was on the track team, and we had, you know, I was a middle distance runner. You worked hard, and so you slept a lot. And you know, yeah. econ class was a good time to sleep. And um, so I really did not have. Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of ideas formed and stuff like that. That would not come until I was a young adult. But 
What do you think is the what do you think was the sort of explanation for the affinity for these more left leaning policies? I mean, left leaning you know solutions to things that I mean, I, I think we would both agree that if there was a threat to poverty, uh, to resource depletion, if there was a if there was a credible threat, maybe at the time, I mean, I don't know, maybe at the time people didn't didn't know that you know uh, it really wasn't truly a threat. Maybe there was just you know a bunch of you know. Uh, you know, Paul Ehrlich, he was, I don't know if he was a fraud or if he actually truly believed it, but like, there's a lot of credible things for Christians to be against or to, you know, embrace as part of a wider view of, of the gospel or of our Christian beliefs. But like, I, I would just, of course, diverge from them in like almost every policy prescription uh, that, that they, they come, that they come with. So where is the origin? I mean, I know it goes back to like Walter Rauschenbusch in the twenties the and there's some things going on way, way back then, but like, yeah. what was their, I don't know if, if you were to say to them back then, like, why do you believe that this is what Jesus wants you to do and proclaim where, where would, what's their defense? I think that one of the things, one of the a catalyst was also the civil rights movement, uh, and this was a real problem area because um, uh, you had, I mean, you know, think about this: if you were, if you were black in certain as parts of America, I mean, you were in a totalitarian society. If you were, you know, in the deep South, for example. Uh, you could be murdered for about anything. And uh, kind of one of the ironies, I guess, you know, I've always believed the woman is that a woman would make an accusation. Usually it wouldn't be true, but it wouldn't matter. You know, you'd have a group of people ready to go and string up somebody and kill them uh, simply on an accusation. And um, once upon a time, that was bad. Now I guess it's supposed to be considered, uh, you know, well, you have to believe the woman, uh, except when we don't want to or something. But, um, but I, I don't want to digress through there. But the problem that the is that a lot a lot of people in the civil rights movement were in fact politically on the left. I mean, the Communist Party in fact did have a lot of people in the NAACP. But that would also make sense. I mean, if you were in the NAACP, you look, you know, you're a black person at that time, having all of these avenues closed to you. Uh, and uh, the conservative churches were finding ways to justify it. My God, I mean, uh, Bob Jones used to speak to the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this back in the twenties, and uh, and there were and and these uh, well into the nineteen seventies or so. A lot of these fundamentalists held on to this, you know, curse of Ham doctrine, which wasn't even. Uh, you know, it wasn't even a biblical doctrine by any means, but you had, you know, you had that, and so there's a larger, there's a larger thing going on. You've got a cultural revolution that's happening. Uh, you have communists that are much more sympathetic to uh, the calls for human rights than a lot of American Christians. And so all that gets tied in, and of course, well, that's all part of capitalism. And then topping it all off is, you have to remember in the early 1970s, that who was the symbol of authority? Richard Nixon. And I remember that, you know, when I was growing up, and you know, I was in college, everybody, your college president, yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Bowling, Ed Bowling at the time. Well, he was Richard Nixon. Uh, Marion Barnes is president of Covenant College. He was Richard Nixon. Anybody in authority was Richard Nixon. And so uh, it tended, you know, so you had a lot of skewed views about these things. And it was, well, it's got to be capitalism. Capitalism is depleting resources and, and the like. It was an easy thing to believe. So it was I mean, kind of the catch-all uh, scapegoat yeah. for all the problems, even if, even if it really was, you know, something completely different. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly right. And so uh, – uh, and also – you know, you that by that time, you know, the colleges and the universities pretty much were going liberal left. Um, and something else to keep in mind: this was before the Democratic Party had embraced embrace abortion on demand. 
All right, the Democratic Party would not really embrace it until later on in the 1970s. Um, and don't forget that uh, the Kennedys at one time were very much pro-life. Jesse Jackson was a pro-life activist. Um, and this would actually play into things much later on. But uh, at that time, abortion on demand was not a Democratic Party priority. Now it's their main priority. I mean, to them, that the entire purpose of the Bill of Rights is abortion on demand. And that's how it must be interpreted. Everything else, due process of law, the right to bear arms, free speech, and all that, those don't exist any longer. You know, those are obsolete. But by George, you know, we've got to protect the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the abortion on demand. And so um, that was something else that had not, that was not really becoming an, an issue. You know, it was kind of it's it was in its infancy, Doug, but it was not really at the forefront um, like it is now. And so um, uh, you had, you know, and, and plus a fact, here's another thing, too, that a lot of major sectors of the U.S. economy had been set up as regulated cartels back in the 1930s, during the New Deal. And so you had a, a version of America, you, you had some very large corporations like General Motors, um, and it was an IBM, and these were very, very large corporations. The, they, they tended to be targets. I remember Tom Skinner, the evangelist, speaking one time, you know, about, uh, you know, you even if you bombed a, a GM plant, they'd come back and come out stronger. You haven't stopped GM at all. Well, of course, the question I would have is, why do you stop, what do you mean to stop GM or stop IBM or something? But this was the view that these corporations uh, were taking over. I remember a, a cult movie at the time was called Rollerball in which corporations run the world. It's very brutal and all that. Well, there's it doesn't logically lead to that point. There's nothing that would – you have to arrive at that point because you want to, but not because anything out – any evidence out there. Jim's making cars for goodness sakes. Although, you know, again, it was Ralph Nader. Well, they were trying to kill us. They want to make cars, but they're unsafe. Uh, and it's because they want to kill their customers. Well, that's an interesting point because once you kill a customer, they can't buy anything else. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, but the problem is that uh, but this was this was the way of thinking. It was I remember having an argument with my dad. You know you know well he, well why is it that IBM is oppressive? Well it's just large you know. And I'm like well so what. Um, it doesn't mean anything. But you had also the U.S. economy by then, this uh, model that had come up and arisen up after World War II with all, you know, the banking sector heavily regulated. The railroads were really deteriorating by then. They they had been uh, regulated heavily for, you know, for close to a century, since 1887. And you had, you know, you had... Uh, a lot of, you know, the, the economy seemed to be slowing down, you know, this economic miracle you know, following World War II had seemed to have run its course. We had inflation and the, and the like. Uh, Nixon put on price controls, which gave us, of course, shortages. And um, and so you had this view of capitalism. This is capitalism. It's running into the ground. And... Um, you know, and our worldview at the time was, God, this is it. I mean, you know, this is the world is, is just falling apart. The um, the economy is falling apart. Uh, we're looking at lower and lower standards of living. Inflation is double digits and the like. And so when you're in that situation, you're looking for answers. Well, it's got to be capitalism. And at that time, keep in mind that the gap in the standards of living between what would be the socialist world or the communist world um, was not the same, was, was not as great then as it would become later. 
All right. And I think that's, you know, that's an important point to remember that, you know, you have to look at what was going on then. And the events are going to affect how people look at the world. Um, you know, we want we say we want to interpret events through our theology, but what was really going on was that people were interpreting theology through the events. Um, and um, and again, and being in the background, you've got you've got the civil rights movement, um, and and it was not really being embraced by you know by the you know, the church. Look, I remember. Uh, um, my dad was uh, he was working as a supply pastor for a church uh, in Chattanooga Valley, which was in north uh, northwest Georgia, and um, and I remember at the end of a sermon, the, the Sunday following the shooting of Martin Luther King, um, he uh, you know he spoke about it, and you know he spoke you know in a way that uh, made it very very clear. That uh, that this was wrong, that it was you know that uh, you know it was murder and all that, and most of the people in the church they were they were very they were from that southern very you know the the Christian races they disagreed. Now they respected my father so much that nobody got up there and said anything to him, but they were you know to them Martin Luther King was a troublemaker, got what was coming to him, and uh, and so you. You know, cue, you really, cue the sermons on Romans thirteen, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yes. Uh, you had, uh, um, and that was that was a big deal. You know, the whole Romans thirteen, and and uh, you know, you you have to understand that uh, you know, someone like Richard Nixon was a very divisive person anyway, and he was very paranoid, um, and uh, and you had. Uh, you know, you had a, a, an economy that was regulated in a very different way. When you have a regulated, um, you know, the, the where the government is setting routes, setting prices, like they did in, in trucking, uh, the and railroads and airlines, uh, telecommunications. You had a standard central monopoly. Well, the AT and T monopoly was not created by capitalism; it was created by government. It was a legal, you know, point of the gun monopoly, and um, and so and that economy was starting to break down. As you would expect, that there were a lot of pressures on, and interestingly, that um, and this is not exactly a you know in the subject, but I have to bring it up. And that is that the Carter administration engaged in a number of deregulatory initiatives. That actually would free it would end up freeing up capital, totally changing transportation and telecommunications, and actually it helped in finance too. And um, you know, Carter, interestingly, was much much more of the deregulation president than Ronald Reagan ever was. I mean, look, Reagan got the endorsement of the Teamsters Union because he promised to delay trucking deregulation for two years. That's something that's not known uh, very much. But and I bring that up because, but you have to understand, in the 1970s, you've got, you know, you've got the Cold War in full. You know, in full bloom, uh, you have the stuff really starting to explode in the, and um, uh, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, communism is is seen as a viable alternative, uh, and there was a lot of cult following. Guys like like um, Wallace and others saw people. They saw okay, Vietnam. They, you know, they they saw the United States. What was going on? There was a lot of awful stuff the United States did in Vietnam, and um, but to them, the bad thing, it was reason was bad was not because the United States is going in necessarily killing people. After all, they didn't have any objections to the Vietnamese and the Chinese killing lots of people, but um, the. Uh, 
it was bad because they were preventing a communist revolution. And there was just a lot of belief at the time that somehow communism would provide a way of better way of organization. Understand something too. These folks saw capitalism as just chaotic and disorganized because there was no central person leading it. Um, this was just how people were thinking. All right. And so um <clears throat> And, and, you know, you've got on one side the conservatives not really um, going, you know, taking the high road on racial matters. You had some university, for example, the 1970 um, conference, uh, It's the keynote speaker was Tom Skinner. And a lot of the conference was aimed at racial reconciliation and and. And the like, and it was. Uh, I did not go. I was a senior in high school at the time, but I, uh, I remember being at uh, Wheaton College on New Year's Eve for a uh, uh, basketball game, and met somebody who had just been come back from there. He's talking how great it was, and I remember reading some of the literature, things that came out of that. So, I mean, you've got just a whole jumble of things going on, mm-hmm. but. The belief was this, and it wasn't just guys like Wallace. I mean, I a lot of people had this belief that capitalism was running its course. That um, we're you know it was exploding in pollution and in um, um, in a lot and um, it was exploding waste. exploding yeah. everything, yeah. Yeah, it's and and or imploding resource depletion, the whole nine yards. And so this was this was the view, the worldview at that time. And um, and so I, I think that that you have to uh, you've got to you know understand how people were thinking, and and so and and. And guys like Wallace are asking. They're they're going in, living in parts of Chicago that um, are you know you know you have poor people, black people, uh, and and the like. And they could you could see yeah they're not going to get a fair shake. You could see how they were the police would treat them. You would see how uh, the kinds of conditions that they lived in and the like. And so. Um, I mean, I can very much understand and sympathize with with how they were, you know, with how things were. All right, and ha- you know, and looking at this and saying it shouldn't be like this. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem, of course, is when you say, "Okay, now what we're going to do? We're going to embrace an economic and social model in which the state is all powerful." And somehow we're going to put good people in government and the good people are going to direct resources in the way that they should go. <laughs> and that's that's OK. And um, it, it probably didn't help that the the Christian right, if you will, was not as adamantly against cronyism. Um, you know, they were they were at least giving lip service to capitalism, but the capitalism they were giving lip service to was that which was probably rightfully opposed, rightfully something we should oppose. Uh, yeah. You know, corporatism and, and the like. What did the what did the um, what did the fall of communism in do to the I think it was 89, right? The, the wall yeah. came down. What did that do to the. The thrust of the argument by people like Jim Wallace and others on the left, I mean, they, they obviously, they couldn't just overnight see, oh, oh, well, we should just change our views because that that failed. That's not what happened. No. And in fact, they didn't. Um, they, I mean, how did, they, they, how did Sojourners cover? Do you remember how they covered the fall? I do not know. I do not. I, I cannot say. What I can tell you is that a lot of them, and this is, I'll, I'll tell you, for example, like the the Marxist left in this country covered it in a way of saying what these people really want is true socialism. For example, when you had the massacre at Tiananmen Square in China in 1989, uh, and, you know, we forget that that event happened as well, the... Um, 
the left would say, well, look, all these students, they're singing the international. All they want is true socialism, that the government is moving towards capitalism, but the students don't want that. And so, uh, no, it's not like all of a sudden someone like Wallace is going to embrace free markets and, and the like, that to them, uh, it was still, you know, a, a bad world in that regard. Uh, but I did not, I, I did not read any, I, I probably ought to go back to some of their back editions and, and read some, you know, some of that stuff from there. Because up until then, for example, during the 1980s, it was the, the purpose of sojourners was to be against Ronald Reagan. And they spent a lot of time dealing with Nicaragua and uh, Central America in general. And it was always in search of this socialism that was going to work. I mean, they embraced the Sandinistas. Um, and by the late 1980s, that's running its course as well. And um, and so they uh, – And but here was something else too. By then, politically, they were moving over towards the Democratic Party. All right, that there had been sort of an independence, and in fact, the early days of Sojourner, I remember uh, they uh, there was an interview that they had with Carl Henry, and uh, Wes Michelson's asking him about critical questions about the state. You know, what should be the role? You know, the, the state. You know, I mean, the state as an oppressor. And it, it was very, very interesting that that it was not partisan back then. It's not. I mean, it's very partisan now. But um, this is, and this was back when these guys were still living off, you know, some ungodly small sum of money. This is before Jim Wallace's salary became over two hundred thousand dollars and the like, and before guys like George Soros were <laughs> were funneling money to them. But the, uh, um, but it's not like they were saying, "Oh my gosh, I guess socialism really doesn't work." I that uh, um, they were kind of, you know, they were like, you know, when the students want, you know, they, these people they want true socialism, they want social justice, etc. Um, and um, and so, I mean, yeah, there's no way that they could actually change their focus at all. But they were also by that time starting to really just move into the Democratic Party camp. And I think that that was something that was, you know, that, that you really that we have to understand was part of what was making up sojourners in that they really were these guys, okay, and they were they were they had been in Washington for for a long time. And here's something else that, that you've got to understand. They were becoming part of the Washington establishment before, all right, beforehand, they were, you know, they they were hostile to the Washington establishment. They were hostile to to that. So which would make them, of course, to a certain extent hostile to to the Democratic Party. But Wallace, you know, starts um, you know, it's uh, he's starting to move into these democratic circles. Uh, he gets to be friends with uh, um, with Teddy Kennedy and uh, and the like, and and uh, but also keep in mind you got you got to understand something about the political divide as well, and that is that. Um, in the 1970s, there were a lot of evangelicals that, and even pro-life evangelicals that were Democrats. Uh, you know, at Covenant, uh, you know, the I suspect that the percentage of faculty members that voted Republican in, say, 1976 would have been uh, far less than what you would see today. I suspect that not all, but most of the Covenant faculty today would probably vote Republican. Uh, but back then, it was it was less so, and there was less difference in, in the party. After all, you know, at, at that time, a lot of Republicans were pro-choice, um, and uh, that so you did, you know, that 
And the parties themselves had not really, really divided the way that they have now. Um, it's a lot more, uh, boy, it's a lot more divided now than than uh, than it used to be then. Hey, folks, if you love listening to our podcast, you may want to check out our monthly webinars. Every month we have a different speaker take a deeper dive into topics relevant to libertarian Christians. If you've missed some of our webinars so far, well, don't worry. You can still download them. Visit our website at libertarianchristians.com slash events. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah. So, you know, you were saying that they became part of the political establishment. Well, it, you know, it's it's no wonder because the political establishment or half of the political establishment became more amenable to their views over time. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, I mean, and, and again, I, I have to give credit to people who want to speak truth to power. But at the same time, you see the phenomenon from a distance and you think, wait a second, you're just becoming enamored with the same kind of power now that they're giving you a voice. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, hey, I mean, if they're if they're standing up for things that ought to be stood up for or or against things that ought to be against, like, you know, being anti-war, uh, you know, then then, of course, you know, we want to applaud them doing that. I mean, who what better than would the Washington establishment become truly anti-war in the next 20 years or something like I don't have any hope for that, but that would be really awesome, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and they have a lot of influence over the past. I mean, they've had a lot of influence now with the Internet being, you know, get a lot of people, their, their message is getting out. And then you have the yeah. rise of people like Brian McLaren and some others that are in his camp as well. So let's let's bring us to the present a little bit here, because I think we're uh, we've we've hung out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, here's here's the thing in the present. What's going on? This is really, really important. And that is that their theology has been changing as well. All right. Back in the earlier times, okay, here's the thing. Their political allies tended to be the main the mainline churches. All right. And uh but they that they did not come out. They were not like the other side. The other side back years ago uh, came out in favor of homosexuality, whereas sojourners did not. They were sympathetic to gay people, but they did not theologically come out in favor of it. Uh, Their theology was, it would be sort of, it was Anabaptist, all right, that um, it would, and a lot of them would believed, you know, like we do regarding Jesus. I mean, they would have been on the edges here and there, but generally speaking, the theology was not that much different. That changed with guys like McLaren and the whole emergent church movement, because what they were able to do was. They totally changed um, how we perceive the gospel. The gospel became a very different thing uh, than it had been. I think this is this is something that that you really have to keep in mind that um, their their core theology changed and. And part of it, I think, was influenced because when you look with the, um, they embraced identity politics, but then what their idea was to make the gospel fit into identity politics all the time, claiming that identity politics is Christian and that the welfare state is the very heart of the gospel. You see, they once they embraced that, and also once they got away from the theology of, for example, of the atonement, very much got away from that. They're very hostile now to the doctrine of the atonement. This, I think this is significant, and a lot of people don't understand it, that the theology they embrace now is not historic Christianity. It's very different. It is um, a uh, it, it's a theology that is pretty much distinguishable um, uh, from uh, from the mainline churches. Uh, it's uh, you know you can call it liberal theology or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think that's something that 
and here's you know they're calling themselves evangelicals, but they're really not anymore. Back years ago, basically they were evangelicals who believed in you know had beliefs in social justice, believed the state should be involved. I mean, look if you read read um, Rich Christians, nineteen seventy-seven. That read that. I mean, the theology—it's Anabaptist, mm-hmm. but it's it's not anti-Christian. He doesn't challenge the cross as try to make the cross into something that it isn't. He talks about the Christ is coming again. I mean, it, this is. This is standard Christian theology, but that no longer is the case with them. They look, you read, go to their page. Um, and I mean, they're embracing Islam. Um, they are, they have attacked. I mean, not only did, I mean, they, they called the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement, that it was, they claimed that it was responsible for mass incarceration. Okay. All right. Now, you got to take it, think about that, mm-hmm. what they're saying. Okay. We're talking about a historic Christian doc, doctrine. Um, they attack, you know, anything, you know, yeah, the belief in, the belief in hell, uh, they had an article recently by somebody. She said she no longer believed in hell because she had a good experience working with a couple of, of homosexual uh, uh, Episcopal priests. And, you know, it's kind of it's, it's sort of a non sequitur, but their whole thing is that uh, they, they've embraced a, a very different gospel. The theology no longer is what we would call standard Christian theology. It it's basically holds to a view, a lower view of Scripture, and the high view of Jesus. And that uh, if and you remember the Babylon Bee uh, several months ago had a you know a satire article saying, well. Um, Jesus wasn't against uh, felony home invasion, so a felony home invasion must be okay, because Jesus didn't speak <laughs> out against them. Yeah. <laughs> they, they get a lot of things uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, and okay. In terms of commentary, their, their satire is really, really, really on point. Yeah, and I, I don't know who it is, but I will guarantee you one thing, too, that that, that person is Calvinistic in his views. Oh, yeah, they definitely I, are. I, I know that for a fact. Must be formed. But I, I think that um, a uh, that this is this to me is a very significant development because um, they're uh, I mean, economically speaking, they've always wanted some form of socialism. And I'll tell you why, because socialism is centrally organized. You have a you have a state directing resources, but you also have a state that restricts freedom. These are not people who who they have never been for individual freedom, individual rights. Uh, if they had been that way, they would not have embraced collectivist societies, you know, collectivist um, economies. Um, and in fact, you know now that Ch- China. Is you know unfree as it is, is still substantially more free country than it was, and it's much more. Um, it's you know it's it has a higher standard of living than that it used to be. Now China is a bad guy, <laughs> you know that uh, uh, Russia is now a bad guy. Now that Russia isn't communist anymore, you know they feel perfectly free. You know, to rip on, you know, to, uh, on Russia and to go after, you know, be, you know, angry at China or whatnot. But, uh, uh, and I suspect probably Vietnam too. I mean, Vietnam has, has been moving away from that for years. Uh, I mean, it's becoming a kind of a neat little country, you know, and, and, uh, I wish we hadn't bombed it so badly. It might have been a neat little country a while back. But, uh, um, you know, the, um, the point, though, is that they've made they've made some very big fundamental changes uh, 
since then. And uh, it's basically squarely in the Democratic Party. They've embraced the sexual revolution. What they say is that because Jesus did not speak out against the sexual revolution, that the sexual revolution must be okay. And, uh, and, that, um, and they're also embracing a form of universalism. You know, and uh, that's that. You know, that's Rob Bell, right? Okay, it's it's basically you know, a lot of this is Rob Bell theology that they're embracing, and Brian McLaren theology, uh, and I mean, you see where it leads. Yeah. So, in in a couple of the remaining minutes that we have here, I wanted to kind of ask you because you you do economics, and you know, I I have often you know in conversations with people on the left or the Christian left, you know, I could. I could engage them on the theological problems that some of which you mentioned here and kind of go at it on that level. But it's probably, you know, when it comes to like talking politics with them, it's often, you know, helpful. I found it helpful to just engage them on the, the assumptions they have about how the economy works, what yeah. actually, what actually it does. So I just have a, a handful of, you know, items here that, yeah. you know, and get your receipt, your, your, a quick response on what is what do you think um, accounts for their um it seems like they really kind of espouse a marxism uh, of sorts uh, yeah. their their outlook on the economy i mean i read walter brueggemann talking about speaking truth to power and social politics in the old testament and he immediately talks about surplus value being exploited by the workers and there's just like this assumption that that there's a surplus value uh, in in labor, and they talk about things as if the only the only thing that exists in the economy is a power struggle between you know owners and workers. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Well, here's the thing that that uh, uh, Bombaver back in around 1890 or 1891 blew that apart with his uh, pamphlet uh, Karl Marx in the Close of a System that the Marxist uh, assumed that uh, there's no such thing as time value of money. Uh, and in fact, if you talk to Bergman about it, he would know he would be suspicious of it. That they just they they really have no understanding what a price system does. They you know it, it's like reading stuff from Calvin College. You know where where they claim that scarcity that there is no scarcity that God wouldn't do that that God presents these resources for our enjoyment and value and 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 blah blah these all this flowery language and that the idea of scarcity that God would do that is just terrible and you know I think okay well then we don't have a conversation because if you don't believe in scarcity uh, then uh, you know you you really you don't even believe in economics you, you don't yeah. you know, well I think they economic. believe that 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 capitalism a lot thing scare well they wouldn't call them scarce right they would say well there's plenty to go around and capitalism make sure that the the devil gets the hindmost that's yeah they, they, use that they, phrase well, they believe that capitalism actually creates scarcity oh and uh, that god pro- provides all this stuff uh freely for us and uh i mean now how do we combine resources how do we know which resources to do and all that they they have no idea what happens with entrepreneurship they just don't it's it's a world that's so f- removed from them they these are folks mostly um they wouldn't know how to make a living if it weren't provided for them somehow and uh they 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 have no they they see a product on on the shelves they have no idea how it got there they're going yeah. to assume slave labor and the like so yeah it's it's very difficult when you're you're going to talk about surplus labor um surplus value that's okay now you're going back to Marx um, and if you put in time value of money then uh, and the whole notion of of wages being the discounted marginal value product now you're in a different different world but they would just say well you're just using language you're but you're clouding the issue but the truth of the matter is that <laughs> without the entrepreneur organizing thing these folks are engaged in nothing more than and trying to just survive they're yeah, like what do you want idle labor instead i mean that's the alternative yeah well that's just it they they don't um 
They don't really have they, – they, look, a lot of these folks believe that the world took a wrong turn with the Industrial Revolution, that somehow yeah. God never intended for the Industrial Revolution to happen and that if we could just be back in those idyllic happy days, uh, yeah, when life expectancy was uh, 29 years old, when you didn't name your yeah. children. Yeah, they want, they want us all feel like we're one with the earth. Well, you know, you become one with the earth much earlier in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, and so I, I think that was a real problem. That's it's hard. Look, it's very hard to discuss economics with somebody if they cannot even if you cannot find common ground even on the basic things. But it's like you know, if I yeah, it would do me no good to have say a professor from Calvin College to talk economics with them because they deny the existence of scarcity. So I mean, what's you know, what's the point? You know, you can't. You, you there's nothing to discuss. It's interesting that you know, given the history that you've described, and I mean, that's been my understanding of how things have happened as well. Uh, that they embrace the either communist or socialist views of of the uh, of those other countries in the 70s and 80s that had yet to be yet had yet to fall. Yet today, people are people on the left are not very happy when we call them socialists because we we almost refuse to call them by what they want to be called, which is a democratic socialist. And we're like, well, we just call them socialists, and they get all upset when we're like, we're like, well, we're not socialists, we're democratic socialists. Like like adding that qualifier means something, but like their history is very much about embracing a socialist outlook. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, democratic socialism, just being something democratic just means majority view for things. And, you know, the old adage of democracy, you know, is three, you know, two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch. Yeah. And um, and so that that's, uh, you know, their their view is somehow if some everything is done with a majority vote, that that somehow makes it it moral and legitimate. That's a whole, yeah, you know, it's like that, God ordained. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you can look at the lynchings in this in the deep south uh, as a form of democracy. That's what they were. It might be lawless, but hey, it was they're over there. They had the yeah. vote, right? Yeah. They were voting to kill somebody, and and uh, and you know, the, and always believe the you know, always believe the woman. Now, there's like I said, there's other stuff we haven't we haven't gotten into. I think that that would you know would take a long time, um, and uh, and that re- that involves uh, the uh, I'm trying to think how best you know how best to put it. Um, you know that when you're getting into progressivism itself, they refer to themselves proudly as progressive progressivists. Well, if you get into the views of progressives, you know the people who started the movement more than a century ago, you find that they're racist. Um, you know that. Uh, have you ever seen Jim Wallace, for example, be willing to address the racial and social views of Margaret Sanger? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And are you? Do you understand that a lot of the economic reforms that you tout, such as you know high minimum wages, were proposed precisely to make sure that black people would not be able to, a lot of would not be able to work yep. at all, or that would push them onto the outside, you know, rungs of society. That a lot of these these economic doctrines that they embrace were in fact created for racial racist purposes and now i may even go far saying if you don't embrace them so if you don't embrace the racism of a century ago you're a racist yeah now Explain that to me, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we recently had Deirdre McCluskey on, and she kind of made this comment as, as a little jab about progressives. She's like, well, if they want to use that term, if they want to be associated with forced sterilization, then let them let them go for it. But that's yeah. not what she wants to be associated with. No, exactly right. A lot of yeah. people don't realize the illiberal origins of, of their movement. So I, I have one other one, – one more question for you, and that has to do with something that I, I've, I'm baffled by – that 
I, when I became a libertarian, uh, the theology of people like Jim Wallace, um, and, and I don't want to say him in particular because I really didn't follow him. I don't want to make it sound like that at all because I didn't. Yeah. But you know, the people that that look up to him, people he looked up to, and that kind of thing, they talked a lot about peace and stemming from their Anabaptist uh, influences. And that's something that even as a libertarian, I would embrace an ethic of peace, uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy. And I often wonder why the left gives kind of snubs libertarians, even though on an incredibly major issue, which is the death of people, they, they won't give us the light of day in terms of having a conversation. You know, like there was the joke when Trump came back into the White or back into the White House. It was a joke when Trump came into the White House that libertarian that when the the anti-war left showed up, the libertarians were like, "Welcome back." Yeah. Like, oh yeah. They're not. Are they really anti-war? I mean, where where do you where do you, what's your analysis of that phenomenon? Well, they're anti the United States. They're anti-capitalist nations invading other countries. All right. They're against that. Uh, it's you know the politics of it. They would not be you know for example they would not have been um, against the North Vietnam Vietnam invading South Vietnam. That was not because they were trying to bring about communism. They were they were soldiers of justice. Uh, now I think probably the only two invasions probably that I think I would ever endorse uh, historically, at least you know in in modern times, would be Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia in um, 1979 and uh, Tanzania's invasion of uh, Uganda when Idi Amin was was president. I think uh, Julius Nyeri had had his fill of 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 him, and so he said, "That's it. I'm you know we're invading." But um, and those actually made things better. In fact, the Vietnamese they were the ones that that were yeah they were the first ones to see the handiwork of the Khmer Rouge, and they were just utterly shocked and understand something that they had had a regime of of uh, you know summary executions, imprisonment, and all that. But they were stunned to see you know it's kind of like I think the Soviet soldiers when they come to Auschwitz they're absolutely stunned at what they saw uh, yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, though, that uh, here's the thing, that libertarians embrace capitalism. And to someone like Wallace, capitalism is worse than war. War, you know, that, that to them, the peace movement, it was a means to an end. The end is socialism. Uh, I don't know if you ever read. There's an article I wrote uh, a couple years back called "The uh, The End of Socialist is Socialism." That social it's not about prosperity or a better society. Right. It's socialism, and what you have with these guys is that socialism is the end. And so, if being anti-war is a means to that end, why then it's worth it. But we're not going. But if being anti-war means that capitalism will be more free to practice whatever. Well, that's bad. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, um, I mean, look, you, and plus the fact that their partisanship, they did not go after Obama for what he did in Libya. What, what Obama and you know, Hillary Clinton did in Libya was just frightfully awful. I mean, you know, it was on, it was a smaller scale than what the Americans did in Iraq, which is pretty awful. But nonetheless, you know, if you take away the you know the sheer numbers, the scale, but if you look at what happened, it was just as bad. All right, it was it was just as wicked, and um, the. Uh, and if you remember Hillary Clinton's crack, you know, about the uh, murder of Gaddafi, well, uh, you know, we came, we saw he died. That was a laugh line to a bunch of Democrats. Um, they never called her out on that. They never called her out on anything. So, and why is that? Because to them, the you know, 
you cannot criticize Barack Obama. He's a black, you know, president. He's one of us. And so uh, that, you know, you, you have for us, for libertarians, we're against war because it involves aggression. We hold to a non-aggression principle. Okay, that's our, you know, the central principle that we hold to, non-aggression against others. Um, And war violates that. Uh, You know, we're not against defensive wars, but we're against, um, you know, the invasion of other countries. It's, It's fundamental with us. To guys like Wallace, um, war is a means to an end. And if, uh, and it's it's about socialism. The end is socialism, not a free society, a socialist society. And whatever is so, if an anti-war movement will help bring that about, good. If the anti-war movement does not bring it about, why then you don't become you know you you find a way to justify it or you ignore it. And I think that's something that's, that's important. These look, these guys, we're not dealing with honest people anymore. I mean, when Jim Wallace lied, openly lied about receiving money from George Soros back when Marvin Olasky called him, he he said that Marvin Olasky lies for a living. All right. Think about that. That's not just saying, hey, I didn't get money. He's uh, he's mistaken. It is Marvin Olasky lies for a living. And while Wallace knew that Olasky was telling the truth. And my point is that Wallace, at, at that moment, even though he apologized, he should have been totally shut out of every you know, like Christianity Today or any other group, they they should have just said, "Okay, we are done with you. There is no statute of limitations on on what you did." Uh, and um, uh, and especially when you know the goals of somebody like George Soros. I mean, Soros yeah. is uh, you know we're talking about. Uh, uh, I, you know, my point is that, you know, they may talk pro-life, but they, you know, it's pretty weak, but it's always, we're pro-life, but we're entirely, in other words, it's the welfare state that's pro-life and that uh, you just want people, you just want to protect people in the womb, blah, 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 which is a lie, but, you know, they've gotten away with it for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, I just see him basically as somebody, he gets, he fronts for Soros, he fronts for uh, Planned Parenthood. I mean, you know, and uh, but no, but you have to get back to the theology too. Their theology no longer is what we would call an evangelical theology. Yeah, well, there's a lot of it sounds like the good intentions gone wrong story <laughs> here because it's just so many things that you embrace that you become you become part of the establishment. You become against you, yeah. you become against things not worth being against. Uh, you know, namely capitalism and, and free choice. And, uh, you know, free, free people exercising, you know, their free choice. And, uh, yeah. So, well, I, I just want to thank you for joining us and giving us, giving us that picture from, you know, from somebody who's, who's kind of seen it happen and, and understands what was going on from a, from a, from a kind of a different angle there. And just to kind of explain what, what some of the appeal is. So Bill, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Doug. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.